All right, what you are receiving is a packet of uh, illustrations that I think will be of immense help to you as we go through this series on the, the tabernacle and temple. Um, so hold on to this if you can, because we're going to be using it for the next year. Um, if you do lose it, just let me know. I can print off a copy for you anytime, but um, you'll want to hold on to this. This is really useful stuff. Yes, I can also send you the PDF. So yeah, if you could just email me, that will help me remember to send it to you. All right, why don't I open us in prayer, then we'll get into uh, our lesson. Oh, Father, we thank you for the um, celebration of your advent, of the many ways in which you have come into this world, come even into us. And as we meditate upon your indwelling in us and in Christ, Uh, This evening, we ask for your blessing on our studies. We ask you to give us sharp minds, clean hearts, as we uh, try to apprehend spiritual things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I try to do in each of these is just review what we did the last time, because I know it's been actually a full month since the last time we talked about any of this material. And then also it gives uh, you guys a chance to, to answer questions and score points. So, uh, we, so uh, we're in the middle of giving uh, what we might call a theological account of how the Bible makes us to say that God is present. So this is, you know, you tell your kids God is everywhere. Uh, how do you say that in a way that isn't heretical? Because <laughs> most people's notions of God is everywhere is actually very uh, heretical. So we're trying to to be, we're trying to be less heretical. That's, this is what being a Christian is. Uh, you know, you're trying to grow in your understanding because we all have very wrong and idolatrous thoughts uh, about God, about the world in our head. And as we study Holy Scripture, it helps purify us from the, some of those wrong thoughts. So that's a little bit of what we're trying to do with this one idea of God's presence. Uh, one of the other reasons we're doing this is because we're trying to understand what the tabernacle and temple are and uh, what their importance is. So as you'll, if you look through this packet, um, on that first page that uh, has a picture of the tabernacle, there's these little, you know, fascinating facts about the tabernacle. It says there are 50 chapters in the Bible that discuss the tabernacle. (laughs) So in terms of just proportions of what God thinks is important for us to know, he apparently really wants us to know about the tabernacle and the same could be said about the temple, Uh, not to mention like the entire book of Ezekiel, which is like 48 chapters long, is all about the temple. He's like measuring the temple. He's seeing things in it. So these are, uh, you can't really understand the Bible unless you understand these two really crucial uh, structures. So we said that these physical structures are symbols of God's presence, and we want, we want to make sure we understand the ways in which God can actually be present by tying these symbols to some concrete reality. Okay, so we're talking about the reality of the thing signified. Um, now, does anyone remember the three ways in which God can be said to be present? So that was, that, that sounded right to me. Um, 
So we ended, we ended, we've only talked really about God's common, what we call God's common presence so far. So this, this is the biblical uh, idea or the divine name that God is omnipresent. That's typically how people think of this. So we, we're calling it God's common presence or omnipresence. And uh, does someone want to explain some of the ways in which uh, that name, omnipresence, is often heretical, or what are some of the errors that you might fall into when you try to say that God is present everywhere or in every reality? Anyone just want to take a shot at guessing what, oh yeah, Maya. Saying that everything is a part of God? Yeah, and um, so again, for the recording, in case, oh, you got it? Okay. So, Okay, you guys hear, hear that? <laughs> so if your belly is grumbling, <laughs> forever on the recording. Um, and Maya, can you think of what the name of that view that you just described would be? That uh, we're all a part of God. Is there a name for that kind of belief? Do you, do you know the name of that belief? Okay. Does that, anyone know the name of that belief? Yeah. Pantheism, yeah, that's, that's one version of it. Was that the same? Pantheism, yeah. Another way uh, it's sometimes described is as monism. You can think of like mon one, all, all is one. Um, so pantheism is a form of monism that is removing the very real distinction between God and creatures. And it's really helpful if you're gonna ever try to do theology or just try to read your Bible and understand the actual sense of the letters you need to know that God is not a creature. It's like the first thing you need to know <laughs> is that God is not a creature. And you'll find that almost every wrong idea you have about God comes from you thinking that God is like you, that God is a creature. You got to remember, we say things about God like he's good and wise and loving and he reasons and he has knowledge. But you got to remember, but he has that in a way that's not like you because God is not a creature. God is not a creature. Can't really tell yourself that enough. So uh, pantheism, as uh, Maya described, teaches that God is in the world like the soul is in the body. That would be a good analogy for it. And, you know, philosophers will ask, um, where is the soul located in your body? All right, <laughs> so you can do these kind of little mind games, and you, and you should know, well, hey, the, the soul is not a material substance. Therefore, it can't be, uh, you know, half here, half there, right? It's wholly in the whole body. Uh, as we were driving here, my son asked a very deep and difficult metaphysical question, which is, uh, where, where is the darkness? Is that what it was? <laughs> where is the darkness? I'm thinking, okay, well, what is darkness? Well, darkness is not a thing. It's a privation. It's the absence of light. And can nothing? Can, it, can a privation be in a physical space? Right? These, so these, these are the questions that philosophers ask and also children ask. So <laughs> they stump me. So, so uh, yeah, both, both pantheism, monism, different forms. You know, God is the world soul or we are all God. It makes the sin of, uh, you know, saying that we're a part of God or God is a part of us. So I think the analogy that I find most helpful when we're trying to understand God's common presence is that God is present in every reality 
kind of like an author is present in his fictional world. Remember, that is an analogy. It will break down. That's um, the closest analogy we can probably get without being super um, heretical. Uh, So in very technical terms, this is called God as the efficient cause of creation. So the efficient cause is the thing that um, gives gives something to be. It's giving being. It's injecting being. This is what creation is. It's just saying that God is the efficient cause, which is different than saying that God is what we call the material cause, which would be pantheism. So uh, if we thought that God was the material cause, we would think that everything that we can touch that's material is God somehow. Uh, And then some people recognize, okay, that can't be right. And then they say, well, maybe God is like all the immaterial space between material things. This is probably how most kids conceive of God, that God is everywhere. You know, Okay, there's not a body here. I can move my hand through the air. Therefore, God must be in all of this absent space. Again, that's, a, um, that's making God into a kind of uh, material cause, in this case, a mater- Im- an immaterial cause. Um, cause of creation. So I'm telling you these so you know what not to think. Okay, it's, it's none of those, it's none of those. So God is not present to creation as the material substance, as atoms or molecules that everything is made out of. God gives, thing, gives things to be as the efficient cause. And then does anyone remember our proof texts for uh, this doctrine that God is present in every, every reality? What Bible verses are, are you going to use to support that? Okay, so let me give you uh, a good one to memorize. So, so this is Acts 17, 28. And the context is really interesting because this is Paul talking to a bunch of philosophers in Athens. And he actually is not, he's actually quoting a, Greek pagan philosopher. So he's quoting an, uh, an unbeliever, and now it's in the Bible, <laughs> and this is the verse that we use to defend this doctrine. Uh, so this is Acts 17, 28. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. For in him we live and move and have our being. And there's a bunch of other texts we could, that you could actually point to. This one is one of the most clear ones. One of the other ones that's really uh, important and uh, applies also to other kinds of God's presence, which is why we don't typically use it, but it's Philippians 2, I forget if it's 2.12 or 2.13, but it's that God is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So usually in the debates over God's sovereignty and man's free will, that's a verse that you have to always remember not to negate. You always have to take that into account. God is making you to do something freely, That is the Calvinistic position of how divine sovereignty and man's freedom work. You really have free will. You really do that thing freely. And God really sovereignly made you do it freely. That is the biblical teaching. And you see, a lot of debates between Arminians and Calvinists are just failing to understand that. So often Calvinists get this wrong in explaining this and Arminians get it right, but then they argue about other things. So just remember that. All right, before we get into 
talking about humaniform structures, which is the topic of lesson four. That was just our review. Are there any questions at this stage? Throwing a lot at you. Mike. Hmm. I would need to think about that a little bit more. I want to say yes. Yeah, I would need to think about that some more. Good question. Yeah, Charles. I don't know. What if it was? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, I don't. I I forget the name of the the philosopher, but you could probably Google that and and find out. All right, let's talk about humaniform structures. Humaniform structures. Um, what I have here is really a, a bunch of Bible verses, so we'll see how far we get. I'm doing good on time. All right, here we go. The New Testament explicitly tells us that the tabernacle slash temple are figures of Christ and the church. That is, these architectural structures symbolize the divine person of the Son who became incarnate and the body and bride of Christ that is you and I, the church. So that's, I think, a relatively benign claim, but let me just give you the Bible verses that demonstrate that to you. So, so it might be helpful to just like look at this as I am saying these verses. You could look at, you could use the tabernacle, you could use the temple, whichever one you want to look at. But the reason that God wanted these to be built was to teach about the coming of Christ in the incarnation, that God's presence would, would dwell in Christ and that God's presence would dwell in you. So we're going to just meditate on this for, for quite a while. So let me give you a few proof texts. John 1.14 says this, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So uh, in Greek, this word for dwell or dwelt is the same word uh, that you use for uh, tabernacling or uh, you could literally translate it as God tented or God tabernacled uh, among us. So you could, in the, um, the Septuagint, who, who can tell me what the Septuagint is? Some bright student. Charles? Uh, did they translate the New Testament? Old Testament, yeah. So, yeah, the myth, the myth in the, the there's a letter called the letter of Aristeus, which, it, which I think is mythical. Uh, but the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And there's various myths about how it came about. One of them is that all the, these 70 guys, so Septuagint is just 70 in Greek. So 70 guys translated it and they all came out with, you know, a perfectly inspired text or something. Um, so I, I take that as fictional, but um, so, so the Septuagint is really important for understanding the New Testament because a lot of New Testament terms 
you can, because the New Testament is written in Greek, you can go see how did they translate the Hebrew word for tent or tabernacle in Greek, and then how did the New Testament writers use that same language or verbiage? So this is a really important text for us. So when you look up, if you're reading Exodus and you see that God built a tent, or he, he tells Moses to build a tent, well, that same uh, Greek word, it, it's skenao, skenao, um, that same Greek word is used in John 1 to describe God coming and tenting or tabernacling among us. So John's talking about the incarnation and he uses this, this word. Uh, another example, and this one's a lot more explicit, John 2, 19 to 21, it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Okay, that's pretty clear. So Christ, he's both tabernacle and temple. Let me give you now the proofs for the church or Christians as tabernacle and temple. Uh, This is 2 Peter 1, 13 to 14. Uh, Peter says, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, and there's again the same tabernacle word, Uh, or literally it means habitation. I'm in this tent, this dwelling place, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So Peter, speaking of his death in terms of he's wearing a tent, which is his body, his soul is inside of it, and he's going to put it off uh, when he dies. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says something very similar. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So imagine not knowing what the tabernacle was or what happens with the tabernacle and then reading this and then, you know, look at, look at the tabernacle, think about everything you know about it, and then you read a text like this and it's a lot more profound, right? Um, I'll give you one more. So that, that's for man as, or the Christian as a tabernacle. Here's for the Christian as a temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. All right, so both Christ uh, and the church are called tabernacles or temples in the New Testament. And what I want to explore now is where they got that idea from. Was this just supernatural revelation that God injected to them in an ecstatic vision? Or is this actually just a reflection on, on the Old Testament itself? My contention is that it is the latter. Before we get into that, any questions? No. no. 
there's a great, uh, if, if any of you want something that will kind of blow your mind, it might be a, a little, it's going to be weird for you to read, but if you want to read something that will be a nice companion to this class, uh, one of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, wrote a book, it's a very famous book called The Life of Moses. It's a very, very short work. So uh, there's great versions of this online. So if you want to get this, The Life of Moses, and what he does is gives you first just like the biography of Moses's life, according to the scriptures, he's doing what we would call just the literal or historical sense of Exodus or of Moses's life. And that's kind of, okay, that's fine. It's nice to get it all, all at once. Here's a bio of Moses. But where it really gets crazy is the, the second half of the book, he's doing what we call spiritual sense, where it's now what do those realities in the letter, like the tabernacle or like Moses going up to the top of a mountain, and he's just meditating on what those realities teach us. And so he's going to make all sorts of connections that at, when you first read it, you'll probably be like, okay, this guy's on something. But the, the more you actually understand what scripture is doing and the realities in them, the more you're going to be like, okay, he's actually right. Okay, so that's my one caveat. If you read this, you know, I, don't ex- I expect you to be kind of scandalized the first time you read it, but maybe by the end of this class you won't be so scandalized. Gregory of Nyssa, Life of Moses, excellent work. Okay, so here's what I'm going to try to argue right now is basically that uh, Christ, the apostles, when they're speaking of Christ and uh, the church as temples or tabernacles, they're actually getting some of this from, from the Old Testament itself. So I want to look at a, just a little section of 1 Kings chapter 6. So 1 Kings chapter 6, which everyone just knows by heart, uh, describes the construction of Solomon's temple. And there we actually find uh, anatomical terms that are used for the building of the temple. So anatomical referring to, you know, human anatomy. All right. So let me draw this out for you because our, our English Bibles actually uh, don't allow you to see this. So 1 Kings 6, I'll read uh, just verses 1 and 2 to start. It says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children, children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was three score cubits, that's 60 cubits, and the breadth thereof 20 cubits, and the height thereof 30 cubits. So, okay, great, he's describing dimensions. Uh, but who knows what a cubit is? Yeah, roughly. So, yeah, uh, a cubit is basically from your elbow to your, your forearm, okay? So, uh, and, and literally, in, so in Hebrew, it's hama. And th- this is using... Uh, all human body parts for the dimensions of both the tabernacle and the temple. So a cubit is, you got to think, this is what it's talking about, an arm, an arm's length. So it's saying, I want you to make that 60 arms length. So you should be imagining there's like 60 arms going around. And then you, you'll see other things that are uh, maybe smaller that are a span, which is the, diff- the distance from your, your thumb to your pinky. So like, the breastplate of the high priest was a span by a span. So it's, we expect it was a square, and then there's a little gemstone for each of, 
of the tribes. And you, you know that's a universal measurement if there ever was one. Because they had hands back then, and we have hands today. Maybe their hands were a little smaller or a little bigger, just like ours are. But it's a pretty good measurement. And you know, if, if you guys know what ergonomics are, uh, there's a lot of interesting studies uh, between things like using the, the metric system versus the imperial system. That when you actually have humaniform measurements... When you're building a chair or a desk, according to humaniform measurements, they tend to be more human scale, actually friendly to you. And there's lots of really interesting studies on this. So the the tabernacle and the temple are these humaniform structures. So uh, another example would be like the table of showbread um, is given dimensions according to like the hand breadth. So there's all sorts of different hand, arm, length. I mean, even in, uh, we measure usually in feet, okay? There's a, there's a good humaniform measurement that we ought to retain, right? Okay, so that's the first thing. The measurements are humaniform. Continuing on in verse three, it says, and the porch before the temple of the house, and actually, while I'm doing this, go ahead and look at this this page. So this is Solomon's temple. This is what we're, he's describing right now. And the porch is what you think it is. So there's Yachin and Boaz. There's the two pillars. And then there's the porch that he's describing right there. So it says, and the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits was the length thereof according to the breadth of the house. And 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. Okay, it'd be very easy um, for you to just read that in English and have no idea that we were just given another humaniform uh, uh, comment in this verse. So in, uh, uh, in Hebrew, where we read, where it says, and the porch before the temple of the house, uh, some translations have just in front of the temple. In Hebrew, it's literally uh, upon the face of the temple. So this, in Hebrew, this is all pane. The pane is the face. So you, it's just it's a super common Hebrew word. So everyone knows this is face. And then it says, oh, and put, put the porch upon the face. So um, they, it would be kind of awkward to translate it that way. So I'm not blaming the translators. But this is just embedded in the Hebrew mind that these are, the, the temple has a face. Okay. Um, That's the imagery, is that the entrance of the holy place is an entrance into the face or the mind or the head of the temple. Now, go to the last page real quick of your sheet. And you might be wondering, uh, Aaron, why did you give us a statue of of Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel? (laughs) What does that have to do with uh, the temple? Well, this statue is actually a kind of temple. It's actually a kind of cosmos because the temple is also a cosmos. And what is the head made out of? Well, the head is made out of gold. And what is the holy and most holy place made out of? Go back and look at Solomon's temple. It's made out of gold. Uh, you, you'll learn in First Chronicles that between where it's the gold holy place and the bronze altar and the bronze laver, there are silver furnishings. And if you go back and look at that statue of Nebuchadnezzar, you'll notice it goes 
gold, silver, bronze, and then you down to iron and clay. And uh, if you read through the book of Ezekiel, it really um, is using these same kinds of materials as you go farther and farther away from the holy place. So the holy place is the gold place. It's the head. And then as you go out, it's kind of like going down the body. This works horizontally and then in a certain way, it also kind of works vertically as you reflect on these structures. And this is, it, we could really get into the weeds here, but you'll notice like the tabernacle is just one story, right? It's a tent. There isn't multiple stories. But when you get to the temple, there's actually multiple stories in it, uh, multiple stories high. So there's these little treasury houses in the back, it's, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what I mean by the tabernacle and temple being a humaniform structure is that um, it's actually just telling you in the very letter of the text that it's meant to represent the person. It's actually meant to represent the people. It's meant to, re- it's meant to represent Christ and it's meant to represent his bride, the church. Um, before I continue on, any questions at this stage? Maya. Yeah so, yeah, so this is where um, it's hard to just like look at it and then make a perfect correspondence. And part of it is because some of it's vertical, some of it's horizontal. And that's actually part of the puzzle is trying to just understand, one, why did God give us these specific details? And then also he omits certain things where if you were to try to draw these, uh, if you just look up on Google you know, pictures of the temple or pictures of the tabernacle, you'll notice that there are some significant uh, differences and that's because there are just certain things we're not told and you have to infer. So um, it's, I, I don't, some, some think that there is a more like perfect uh, a human anatomy person body that you could like overlay on the temple and the tabernacle. And I think that's close to, close to the truth, but um, it is, I think it might be tough to get there. So arguments have been made for that. This, this, is, a, this is not a new idea. So this is something that yeah, Jews, the Hebrews have thought about and even uh, modern Jews continue to think about the, these structures in that way. Um, but So th- that's part of the work is, you know, you're laying in bed tonight, think about the, the gold in the, the holy place and, and what that means. But um, I do think, the holy place and the most holy place. Once you actually get inside the structure, um, you, you seem to be basically in the human heart or soul because that's where the presence of God goes into. And um, the, the trick is God is giving us material signs of immaterial realities. So this is where you have to, because you don't want to think about God uh, like spatially entering you because pantheism. But that is, that is the symbol that he gives us. Hey, here's a, this glory cloud going into this building. And it's, it's like that. That's also like what the incarnation is like. The, the glory of God, the very essence of God is in Christ, who is, you know, the temple represents his physical body, right? So you have to be careful not to make a heretical statement about Christ or God 
and make sure you purify your symbol as you're moving up to, from a material reality to an immaterial reality.